You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Hey, I'm Anderson Cooper. Welcome in New York. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and this is our 15th CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears, which has been seen around the world on CNN International, CNN Espanol, and also streamed on CNN.com. When we left you last week, the facts suggested we were not making progress toward getting the outbreak under control. Over the last several days, that movement in the wrong direction became clear. That's right. This week, we saw COVID cases reach record numbers in states all across the South and the West. And by the end of this hour, we may have the highest single day of new cases since this pandemic began. Hard to believe. Just today, the governor of Texas put the state's aggressive reopening plans on hold, in large part probably because in Houston, the critical care shortage is now so great that the city's children's hospital is becoming open to adult patients. And the European Union, which has largely contained its outbreak, is now considering a ban on Americans traveling to Europe. In short, what experts warned about, if there wasn't a cohesive nationwide plan, testing, containment, and other measures to stop the spread, has happened. Today, CDC Director Robert Redfield said the number of Americans who've been affected with the virus is likely 10 times higher than reported, which would seem to only underscore the need for more testing. Testing, the president says, he wants to slow down. We would have liked to have had Dr. Redfield about, uh, on about his comments tonight, but same as last week, the White House refused to allow anyone anyone from the task force to come on the program. And the president continues holding indoor rallies where the virus is spiking. Already, members of his own advance team have tested positive for the virus, and dozens of Secret Service agents are now quarantining. So at this critical point, the president is doing everything possible to flout his own experts and keep them off the air, not getting valuable, life-saving information out there. He's not even talking to them. Dr. Anthony Fauci, a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force and one of the top infectious disease experts in the world, uh, said the other day he hadn't talked to the president in two and a half weeks. Redfield wouldn't even say how long it was. Consider how you feel about this White House blocking the country's leading health experts from not only coming on this program to tell you what's happening, but not having daily coronavirus briefings. These are experts whose salaries you pay. Yep. But as before, just because we don't have members of the task force doesn't mean we're going to stop reporting on this pandemic. So tonight, along with our own health team, we're going to be joined by Bill Gates, who publicly warned of a pandemic all the way back in 2015. Yeah, the last time he was here, which was less than two months ago, uh, just more than 63,000 Americans had died this week. Sadly, the numbers topped 122,000. So against that backdrop, we're going to be taking your questions tonight. We'd like you to tweet them to us with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page as well. Also, we'll be taking many of your video questions, as many as we can. You can see some of them there up on the screen. Plus, as always, reports from around the country and the world. First, let's take a look at where things stand right now. There are now more than 2.4 million confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. More than 122,000 people have died. And 30 states across the country are reporting a rise in infections. At least 13 states have seen their cases increase by at least 50% last week. The next couple of weeks are going to be critical in our ability to address those surgings that we're seeing in Florida in Texas, in Arizona, and in other states. New York, once the epicenter of the outbreak, is now one of 20 states where new cases are holding steady or in decline. And in order to keep their numbers under control, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut have now instituted travel restrictions. People coming in from states that have a high infection rate must quarantine for 14 days. Texas, which was one of the earliest states to reopen, is facing a massive outbreak. Doctors in Houston warn they'll run out of hospital beds soon if the infection rate continues to climb. And a warning from the governor. Unless you do need to go out, the safest place for you is at your home. There's still no federal policy on wearing masks in public. The one widely used model suggests widespread mask wearing could save 33,000 lives by October. Public health officials remind us we're still in the first wave of this pandemic. And they warn as the regular flu season looms in the fall, the coronavirus might require some states to shut down again. 
We've all done the, the best that we can do to tackle this virus. And the reality is it brought this nation to its knees. So with that, first to what you just heard Dr. Redfield say, Sanjay, I mean, have we really done all, all we could? It doesn't seem like it. Uh, sorry to say it, Anderson, but I don't think by a long shot. We know we haven't done what we could have done. I mean, we're not even 5% of the world's population, but we make up 25% of the world's infections and deaths. You remember when we were talking about a mortality rate of COVID being around 1% or 2%? Right now, if you do the math in this country, it's around 5%. That's not the best we could do. I mean, right now we could be in a position where anyone could get tested today, get a result back quickly, and then carry on with their life. But that's not the case. We started off behind the curve and we have never caught up. And at the same time, while we reopen, while we refuse to wear masks, while we watch the numbers soar that you just talked about, hospitals filling up again, we also pin all of our hopes and dreams on a vaccine. And while we know that there's been a lot of optimism there, Anderson, truth is, even there, we haven't seen a lot of data. A lot of science is coming to us through papers that haven't been published or peer-reviewed. Even worse, some are coming from just press releases, which come from the companies themselves. Now, this may surprise you, but when it comes to vaccines, there's only been one study actually published in a peer-reviewed journal so far. That one's from China. So, Anderson, I'm glad that we get to continue reporting on this stuff. I'm glad we get to do these town halls because I think the truth has become increasingly hard to find, and yet it matters more than ever. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe he said that we, we've done everything we can. I mean, any, you know, we're going to talk to Bill Gates about this tonight, but I mean, I, I just think it's so important to, to point out, like, there's no reason we, this country, with all the resources it has and all the incredible medical minds and the CDC, which used to be an incredibly worldwide respected organization, which has totally been kneecapped, for the head of it to be saying that, like, they've done everything. I mean, our testing was f- a failure. Their testing from the beginning was was a failure. Uh, and then, you know, the president's whole attitude toward it. I mean, I guess he wants to keep his job and cover for the president. But it just seems, uh, I mean, we we could be Iceland. We could be New Zealand. We could be Taiwan, which has, you know, controlled it. I mean, the, the people aren't wearing masks uh, you know, because of, of COVID in, in, in Taiwan, as, you know, certainly not like uh, they should be here. We, 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 this is no, in no way, shape or form the best we could have done. 17,000 people getting infected every day. That was the lowest number that we had. And now it's going, going right back up. So we haven't done the best we could. And there's no indication still, Anderson, which is frustrating that we're reversing course on that at all. I'm, I'm just stunned that scientists, you know, I guess want to keep their jobs so much or think they're so important that uh, that they're, you know, that they are saying things which are just not true um, because they know if they say the truth, it, it you know, they're going to get kneecapped just like their whole organization has been kneecapped by this president. Um, we're going to have more on, on where the cases are rising the steepest. Let's check in with CNS Jason Carroll here in New York. Jason, Texas was one of the earliest states to, to reopen. We just got some new case numbers from, from that state. What, what do they show? Well, first, when it comes to reopening, Anderson, just within the past hour, Arizona, their governor has come out and it said that they're going to put a pause on reopening. Texas's governor did the same thing, put a pause on reopening. This after a disturbing number came out today, 5,996 new COVID cases in a single day. That's more than they've ever seen in a single day. So that's part of the reason why these disturbing numbers, the downward trend there in Texas, you've seen the governor put a pause on reopening efforts there. But you've got a number of critics of the governor who say even putting a pause on reopening there, you still have restaurants that can operate going forward at 75% bars that can t- that can continue to operate at 50%. And so you've got these critics who look at this and say, look, if you really want to have a handle on what's happening there in Texas, you have to do more than pause. You have to roll back on reopening efforts. But there just doesn't seem to be a political will to do that at this point. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing, right? The status quo, things the way they are right yeah. now, the numbers are going way up. I mean, you can't keep the status quo, clearly. I mean, in California, Jason, as well, on the other hand, they were one of the earliest states oh, yeah. to issue stay-at-home orders. But they're, they're now seeing an alarming increase in hospitalizations as well. What do you hear is going on there? Right, California, another one of those states, uh, populous state, had opened 
and now as a result of that, uh, seeing disturbing numbers as, as well. 36, 32 percent increase in the number of hospitalizations there, a 19 percent increase in the number of those admitted to ICU. With those types of numbers, the governor there is now looking and saying, wait a minute, going forward, if those numbers continue to trend in that direction, he will not only put a pause on efforts there, mm. but he's, he would also consider rolling back efforts there. And that's what a lot of people are saying might be needed eventually. What, what about mask wearing? Any progress on getting more you know, people to, to wear them? Or, are more states going to require them? Well, you know, that, that's more complicated because, look, you've got no national policy when it comes to this. You've got the president who's refusing to wear a mask, leaving it up to the states. And so basically, as a result, what you have is sort of a hodgepodge of policies depending upon where you are. You look at states like Arizona, Texas and Florida, where you're seeing surges in numbers there and no sort of statewide national policy when it comes to mask wearing. But if you're in the state of Florida, if you're in Miami-Dade, or if you're in you know, Palm Beach, those cities say, yeah, you, you are required to wear a mask. But if you look at the country nationwide, just within the past 24 hours, uh, states such as Nevada, North Carolina, South Carolina, they've all come out and said, okay, we're now gonna have statewide policies in terms of wearing a face covering or wearing a mask. But aside from all of that, you've gotta remember what health officials say. You can say it until you're blue in the face, uh, when it comes to wearing a mask, it can help save lives, hmm. period. Yeah, Jason Carroll, thanks. And to elaborate a bit on the travel ban considered uh, being considered on Americans, I want to put up on the screen two trend lines. They show the seven-day rolling average of new cases. The one in the pink there is the European Union going all the way down. The United States is green, going up. Both spiked up within weeks of the other, and as you can see, at, at almost an identical rate. We could have been on the path of the European mm-hmm. countries now, but we're not. The EU countries dropped down, have since stayed down. U.S. plateaued and is now on another steep rise. So let's check in with our uh, uh, chief international anchor, Christian Amanpour, in London. I mean, it's incredible and it's devastating to look at that yeah. chart. I mean, what exactly is the European Union considering when it comes to travelers from the United States? Well, Anderson and Sanjay, obviously that map tells the whole story because the Europeans are getting ready to sort of lift lockdown. Here in England, for instance, it's due to happen on July 4th. It's already been happening in Europe. And what they're trying to figure out is how to keep their graph going in the right direction and not doing what that green line is showing, which is flatlining and even going up. That's very stubborn in the U.S., whereas you have this sharp Uh, upward tick and then the downward tick in Europe and elsewhere, but not in the United States. So they are going to be looking at who will come into the European Union, especially for the tourist season, which they're getting ready for now. It makes up a huge amount of their GDP. EU is the biggest tourist destination. So they are looking to see who will meet certain criteria. So the United States could be barred still, uh, Brazil, Russia, all the countries where A, you see the trend of infections rising, and B, you don't see um, you know, a good uh, test and trace and isolate, a good surveillance mechanism. So that's what's going on. But here's the interesting thing. These bans have been in place since March. The Europeans have have banned most people, most countries from outside Europe, except for emergencies um, from coming in. And so is the United States. As you know, the US has banned people from all over the world since early March. And in fact, the EU has said the the U.S. ban is so much stricter that they don't expect the U.S. to make any fuss about this potential, you know, ban for the next several weeks or, or whatever it is. And indeed, they say they haven't heard any complaints from the U.S. So it, it's a very interesting situation. And the EU says that these will be revisited as the cases and as the situation, as the science develops. You know, when when President Trump ordered the ban on travelers coming from the EU back in March, the U.S. had just over a thousand cases. Countries like Spain and Italy were surging. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, three months later, it's like we've done a a complete 180. I mean, it's a reminder, again, just of the perils of of not having a plan in the United Mm -hmm. States. Well, yes, and you know, not having a plan, for instance, here in the UK either. I mean, look, it is very, very clear that the countries that are doing the best on mainland Europe, for instance, you mentioned Iceland, Germany, Finland, Denmark, Norway, not Sweden, by the way, who decided to be an outlier and has not done well at all, and it 
is now being banned from, from going into neighboring countries like Denmark and Norway. They don't want Swedes there uh, this year for the moment because of the upward tick in their infections, their deaths, uh, etc. So the Far East countries you've mentioned as well did some really interesting uh, containment and mitigation. And they, all these countries did specific things, either locked down early, fast, uh, and, and you know, very, very you know, significantly, and or very sophisticated test, trace, isolate. They had that capacity and they used it. So in all of the countries that are doing well, they either did one or the other or both. Yeah, they, they didn't have anything that we, we don't have, uh, you know, just basic yeah. public health tools. Besides Sweden, are there any, any other struggling hotspots? Well, the UK. I mean, let's yeah, be okay. serious. The UK has 43,000 deaths and maybe more, and it is the highest toll in Europe. And again, it was because of the slowness. It was because of, you know, all sorts of reasons why they didn't, you know, accept European help on tests, on PPE, on things like that. And they still, despite last week or so, promising, quote, a world-beating test and trace operation, it just hasn't happened. So we have an issue with that over here in, in the UK and on July 4th they plan to reopen. There's some some other European countries have seen spikes but they're able to deal with them and they expect that as sort of lockdown opens is can you deal with them? Yeah, Cristiano Mampour, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Protected now from uh, someone who's made fighting disease around the world much of his life's work. Bill Gates through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is on the forefront of the battle against HIV, malaria, neglected tropical diseases. And as we mentioned at the top, he predicted a pandemic much like this one five years ago and urged the world to start planning to prevent it. We didn't. We last spoke with him as states were starting to reopen and the president was already declaring victory. Bill, thanks so much for being with us. There are now more than 120,000 dead in America. I think the last time you were with us, it was around 60,000. The WHO is warning the pandemic is accelerating. Is there any reason beyond our poor response in this country to this virus to explain why we, with all our resources in this country, why we are the worst off country in the world right now with the most deaths and cases? Well, the United States has had a tough time. Uh, You know, we're not as tough on uh, contact tracing or enforcing quarantine and the compliance with mask wearing in the U.S. is far less uh, than particularly in, in the countries in Asia. And so Europe's seen a much greater drop in cases than the United States. Uh, you know, the health experts and others like myself are saying, hey, let's not lose sight of this. Uh, even though the weather is helping us a bit, may would have been much worse if the uh, virus wasn't somewhat seasonal. And so we know now that we're benefiting from the summer and so force of infection will get worse in the fall. So all the more reason not to get completely lax in our behavior. Um, you know, the only good news in this is that the death rate has gone down somewhat as uh, we're learning how to treat people better, we're less overloaded. But uh, the global picture and the U.S. picture are both uh, more bleak than I would have expected. Uh, Bill, th- thanks so much uh, for coming back to speak with us. I thought we'd be having a different conversation, frankly, end of June about this. Last time we spoke, I asked you about cognitive dissonance, you know, this idea that people are already taking victory laps, acting as if the pandemic is over. How much do you think that's contributing? I mean, we know about the testing issues. We're going to talk about that, masks, physical distancing, but just the mindset overall. How much do you think that's contributing, this cognitive dissonance, and, and, and why? Why here? Well, it's almost as though people have a willingness uh, to go into lockdown once and, you know, for a certain period. And that, uh, you know, maybe that's not surprising. Then it takes to get them to to extend it past a certain thing or even to inconvenience themselves with masks, uh, you know, requires maybe somebody they know. Uh, to not only test positive, but maybe get very sick as well. And so the range of behaviors in the U.S. right now, some people who are being very conservative in what they do and some people who are basically ignoring the epidemic, uh, it's, you know, huge. And, you know, we've worn out people's patients. And if they don't see it in some way, uh, they, you know, some people almost feel like it's a political thing, which is, is unfortunate. 
the, the, the White House continues to promote this idea that the reason we have the most cases is because we do the most and best testing. When I say we, we mean, I mean the United States. Just to be clear, the idea that testing is the reason why the United States has so many cases and is and I mean the the allegation is that testing is giving a false sense of the spread of the virus. I mean, is that factually correct? No, it's completely false. It's fair to say that you can find more cases when you do more testing, but the U.S. is experiencing a rebound even once you factor out uh, the increased testing. And you know it's true the local authorities over time have gotten their act together on testing, no thanks to uh, you know, a broad, clear message from the federal government. And that testing, there, our foundation's been funding certain innovations like the uh, test at home swab and various ways of processing the samples. And so in the fall, that the testing capacity will continue to go up. That's good news, but that's not the reason why we're seeing these case increases. Uh, you know, if you take New York or the New York area out, uh, in fact, uh, we're still very much in the in the thick of things, and uh, better treatment is reducing the deaths. But particularly as you get into October, November, this thing will be back in big numbers if we don't restrain our behavior more than it looks like we are right at the moment. If, if you start to look at the actual numbers of tests, uh, you know, what, what you'll hear is the United States now conducting over 400,000 tests a day, which, as you point out, significantly better than we were. It was less than 20,000 a day, I think, back in March. But, but I think the, the question comes up is, what is the right number, right? Because what you keep hearing is, you know, we've done 25, 26 million tests in, the, in this country. It's far more than other places. Uh, so so w- what's the problem here? Isn't that enough tests? How do you, uh, is there a right number? Well, with testing, uh, there is an approach that uh, people talk about where you do mass testing. But a half million a day, uh, that means over a course of a week, you're testing 1% of the population. So that's still a very scarce resource. Mm. You have to confine it to people who are either at very high risk or who have symptoms or had contacts with somebody who tests positive. If there's breakthroughs that let you get from 1% a day, 1% a week, to more like 10 to 20% a week, then you could use mass testing to find cases. But you know, no other country has relied on that. What other countries are doing is they're restraining their behavior, including using masks better than us, but they're also quarantining when they test positive and they're doing contact tracing. And there are states that are very serious about contact tracing. It's been slow to get going. Uh, it hasn't worked as well here as it has, say, in Germany or South Korea or Australia. It's partly when you have a large number of cases, uh, it's very hard to get right. You know, people have a sense of privacy uh, that are tough. The applications have not really, uh, the software hasn't added much to it. So. Because we're not, our behavior and our contact tracing is not working well, we continue to have very large uh, case spread. And it is embarrassing versus, say, Europe or uh, uh, other countries. Do you and, and Melinda have worked around the world on viruses and diseases. You've had incredible results in, in many different parts of the world. And, and you're dealing with vaccinations in places, which is obviously politically, socially, a very, you know, controversial issue in a lot of places that you operate. Have you ever, in your vast experience, seen a situation where fighting a virus or disease has become so politicized, where the act of wearing a mask now seems to be a political statement in some way? I wouldn't have expected it here in the U.S. Uh, You know, the the governor of North Dakota, uh, a friend of mine, you know, had to say, hey, please don't be mean to people who are wearing a mask, uh, which, you know, kind of blows the mind. They, we have seen the equivalent in polio eradication, where there'll be rumors that the polio vaccine uh, is to sterilize women and that you really shouldn't go near it. And so, yes, vaccines are often subject to these rumors 
Uh, and those rumors are just so hard to get rid of. Even, you know, the, the, the thing from the past where they said it was associated with autism, which, you know, trial after trial showed that that's absolutely not the case. You just can't, uh, you know, the bad news travels faster than the, the truth in that case. And uh, so, you know, there's definitely some dissonance in the U.S., and but I mean, you know, we're going to have you know, a lot the, of cases the, in the fall. The irony with this is, I mean, it's mask wearing. It's not, you know, injecting something into somebody. Uh, it's it's something which we can all do, as you said. It doesn't really cost anything. Um, and it not only is helpful to the person wearing the mask, but it's also helpful to everybody around. We've got to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll, we'll talk uh, more with uh, with Bill Gates. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. As we bring you tonight's CNN Global Town Hall, the country has crossed another terrible milestone, 125,000 deaths from coronavirus. The death toll, according to data from Johns Hopkins University, now stands at 125,796. Nearly 126,000 lives lost in this country in just a few short months. And as we talked about just before the break, the CDC director now says that 10 times as many people as previously thought may have been infected with the coronavirus so far in this country. As frightening as that is, it still means, he says, that more than 90 percent of the population is at risk. Continuing our conversation now along broadly similar lines with Bill Gates. So right now, there's been roughly 5 to 7 percent of the United States population that's been infected with the virus. That's a rough number. It's a lot of people. Uh, but I know you've heard a lot from people like Dr. Michael Osterholm, who's the director and founder of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy in Minnesota. And he said uh, this interesting quote this past week. He said, the virus is not going to slow down transmission overall. It may come and go, but it's going to keep transmitting until we get at least 60 or 70 percent of the population infected, uh, which may give immunity, or if we get a vaccine. So I'm just wondering, do you agree with him that unless we get a vaccine, that that percentage of Americans will likely get infected? That's right. And even with the vaccine, there's two characteristics of a vaccine. One is whether it protects you individually uh, from getting sick. The other is whether it stops you from being a transmitter of the disease. And it's possible the vaccine will be better at protecting you individually and not stop you from transmitting. We're trying to look at the various vaccines and see how they measure up on those two dimensions. Uh, but it's not guaranteed that the vaccine will be a perfect transmission blocker. We, we still don't know whether someone who's had the disease and recovered enjoys immunity from it. Going forward, I know William uh, Heseltine, a former Harvard Medical School professor, told CNN this week, I call this virus the get it and then your body forgets it. This is not a standard virus. He said that you're going to get herd immunity. There is no evidence of herd immunity for coronaviruses. It does not exist. Every year, the same four coronaviruses come back to give us colds. If you have one of those coronaviruses, it can cause the exact same disease a year later. Do you think he's right? The immune response to coronavirus is much greater than to the other related things that cause those common colds. And so when we look at these antibody levels in over 80% of the patients, they are very strong. And so we don't think you get immediately reinfected. How long the protection is, is it a year, two years? And are there some people, particularly the asymptomatics, who it's very short for? That's still pretty unsure. But the good news that came out in May was the antibody response uh, is very strong. And that's what's made us hopeful that a vaccine will work or that uh, monoclonal antibodies as a therapeutic will work. So he's being a little more negative than at least the recent evidence suggests uh, at least one year of protection for almost everyone who gets symptoms from the disease. A big, part of, a big part of your fight against, against malaria was providing mosquito nets to people. Um, I think the UN says it saved 7 million lives, prevented, you know, billions of, of, or a billion malaria cases. Do, do you see that fight? I mean, do you see the wearing of masks as sort of equivalent to distribution of, of 
you know, nets for malaria? It's similar because you're asking somebody to do something that's fairly inconvenient. And uh, the benefit actually is to your village uh, as well as to yourself uh, because those nets actually kill mosquitoes. Uh, so it, it helps everyone there. And uh, yes, that, you know, keeping that compliance up, particularly when you succeed and people aren't seeing as much malaria, then it's hard. Uh, and so, yeah, all these health things like getting your children vaccinated uh, are, you know, a little bit of inconvenience now to avoid uh, something that's much later in time. And the probability for an individual may not be all that high. So uh, it's, it is a, uh, you know, sort of social behavior, do you care about other people type test. I want to play something that Dr. Fauci uh, talked about during his testimony about a vaccine. Let's play that. And I believe it will be when and not if we get favorable candidates with good results. We will be able to make them available to the American public, as I said to this committee months ago, within a year from when we started, which would put us at the end of this calendar year and the beginning of 2021. I mean, you, you mentioned timeline a little bit. Is that realistic? And also you talked about distribution, you know, having a vaccine that works uh, and then actually getting it distributed and figuring out how it's distributed and paid for. What sort of a timeline is that? The the big problems are safety and efficacy. And phase three trials are very complex to do. And you may see you know, a safety signal that forces you to try out uh, in a broader set of people. Uh, you know, the the two constructs, both Fauci and I are very hopeful that they'll work. I talk to him regularly, uh, more often than he talks to some other people. So the... You've talked to him the, in the last two and a half weeks? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, he's fantastic. The and And his view of the chances and our viewer are very aligned. We're seeing the same data, we're sharing the same data. So I have a, a lot of hope for those two constructs. If the safety and efficacy is there, the factory piece is is being done. The cost of, of those two vaccines, the ability to scale up production is very, very strong. And the logistics in the US are not not an issue at all. We can get, get this thing out there. Now, people will, some people, uh, you know, you'll have a choice of whether you you take the vaccine or not. So there's that final hurdle. And, and what about the manufacturing side of things? Because Dr. Fauci also said, uh, I think as part of that same testimony, that there's likely to be more than one winner. That's how he described it when it comes to developing a vaccine, maybe two different platforms. But are, are, are you able to, to make enough vaccine? Is there enough manufacturing capabilities to work on different types of vaccines at the same time? Yes. Yeah, so... We know all these bioreactors that are available in the US, in Europe, in India, and in China. Uh, and so our vaccine team, all these companies are doing this not as some big profit thing, but you know they wanna help out. And so saying, okay, if this vaccine works, then we'll have this facility in Germany, this facility in India uh, match up with that and we can get up to these very large numbers that's being worked through. And because we're putting money at risk, uh, Europe is now putting some money at risk, CEPI, uh, between the BARDA, CEPI, Europe, ourselves, we're building up, at least for those two vaccines, a huge manufacturing capacity that over a couple of years, you can make enough doses essentially for the entire world. Some of the other constructs including the RNA constructs, it's not, it's not gonna be as easy to scale those up. The cost will be higher, the output per factory will be lower and it requires a somewhat different factory. So for each of the top 20 or so constructs, we understand, okay, where will it go? And we put the money behind the ones right now that are earliest and do have somewhat promising data. 
the the um, uh, issue that you've dealt with that you alluded to earlier is is vaccine hesitancy. You know, for 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 all sorts of different reasons. And I don't know if you've seen some of the recent data, but they say you know thirty percent of people may already have vaccine hesitancy when it comes to this particular vaccine. And you know, it's it's one of these things where we're rushing and celebrating the speed at which things are going. And for scientists, that's exciting. For people who are already a little hesitant about vaccines, it makes them even more nervous. So how do you how do you balance that when when talking about this vaccine or a vaccine? Well, it's understandable that because of the urgency of this, the you know the amount of time that you'll be out looking uh, at it is just going to be less. And uh, you know, so even at, for scientists, really understanding, okay, where the trial populations, including all these different groups and you know what uh how low does the age range age range go you know do we look how do you feel about uh pregnant women in it uh what about the elderly it's a challenge to get that uh safety database uh to build up uh the confidence and you know so you could actually know about some profile and and be putting the vaccine out there and then do further studies on other profiles. Anyway, the uh, you know I do think most people will take this if it's a great vaccine, including the transmission blocking. Everyone will benefit from the fact that 70 to 80 percent of the people uh, will will take the vaccine. You know we should be able to get herd immunity uh, if you get up uh, to that level, and you know so it's it really could then really exponentially drop the numbers. But we need that for the entire world. If we're gonna go back and you know have uh, people uh, taking vacations, international students, international sports events. Uh, so it, it'll take a while till we get the whole, get this thing finished off on a global basis. I'd read an op-ed in the New York Times. It said that, that uh, there's a risk in this, uh, in this country um, that the American public is just going to get used to to all all the dying. That like gun violence, the prevailing view will become, or, or mass shootings, or school shootings. That this is oh, this is just the price we pay. This just happens. It's just a thing that happens. Nothing we can do about it except you know saying thoughts and, and, and prayers. Uh, and that our way of life, you know, there really isn't much we can do about it. it it's a pretty sad idea that suddenly we would accept this as it seems like uh, society is willing to accept mass shootings. Do you think that's possible? I hope not. Um, it's pretty severe. And, you know, the I hope the media continues to remind people of the the tragedy that is represented here. You know, the... You know, right now, if you're in a, a nursing home, you know, they're, you know, because they're so worried, you're actually living almost in prison-like conditions. And it, this is an awful thing that we've done where, you know, old people are are rational to be very worried about uh, getting this and getting very, very sick and, and possibly dying. So... You know, wow, if we become a nerd to this, that's not a, a very positive statement. I mean, this is a more than the kids who died in Vietnam, which was a great national tragedy. And, you know, fortunately, we didn't ignore that. It was first and foremost about, you know, was that uh, wise and uh, how, how do we possibly end that kind of a death rate? Uh, this is greater, greater than that. I think it's so important what you just said about elderly populations living in nursing homes or in their in their in their homes uh, living in fear in, in, in prison like conditions. Uh, uh, you know, it's easy for us to, you know, everyone wants to be able to go out to dinner. And in New York now you can sit in the outdoor, you know, at an outdoor table and obviously businesses are, are hurting. And that's a whole other piece of this, the economic side. But um, while some people in this population are, you know, enjoying themselves as much as they can, there's a lot of people who are hiding in their homes or imprisoned in nursing homes, unable to see their loved ones. And it's easy to forget about them. Hmm. Yeah, and it's almost ironic that the George 
George Floyd tragedy came in this time frame. And, you know, that's about the lower income families, uh, black Americans, you know, facing uh, challenges that other people need to know about and help get rid of. The disease is the same way uh, that, uh, you know, and, you know, it's a lot of study about what factors drive that. But the inequity of this disease against the elderly, against minorities, against uh, health workers, uh, you know, I hope that keeps it as a focus that we bring all of this innovation power. You know, for our foundation, we're trying to get 1% of the relief money in the U.S. designated to help the entire world. And even that, you know, so far, we've made no progress. Uh, but I'm still hopeful that the U.S. will show leadership, step up. Uh, and help help uh, get these tools, particularly the vaccine, out to everyone in the world. You, I mean, you saw this coming years ago. No one really listened to you then. Uh, you know, I listened to you. Well, a lot of people watch your a lot of people watch your TED talk, but uh, but the changes weren't made. The, the the tens of billions of dollars you talked about that would be needed to invest in uh, you know fast tracking vaccines and in monitoring. Uh, zoonotic viruses and the like, it wasn't spent. If authorities are listening to you tonight, what is your advice or or leaders are listening to you? What's your advice? And and is a vaccine the only avenue to to this ending? Or what happens between now and then? Uh, Well, testing numbers will keep going up and there's some breakthroughs there that could get us into, uh, you know, much larger numbers, what I call mega testing. The therapeutics work, uh, dexamethasone, that's real, that's great. Uh, you know, some new ways of formulating remdesivir, and there's two other drugs that uh, in the assays uh, show effectiveness. Uh, there, you know, we will get the death rate down. Monoclonal antibodies are about the only thing that could get it down dramatically if that works out, and we'll, we'll know by the fall. We do need to think about the world here, and you know that I'm still pretty disappointed. Uh, and without U.S. leadership, it's been hard to pull together, uh, you know, a response. And now the developing countries are bearing the brunt of the burden. Brazil uh, is—it's very tough there. India is starting to be very tough. Mm-hmm. So you know, innovation will help solve this. My TED Talk, 90% of the views are after the, the, the pandemic one started, not before. Uh, and yet there are groups, uh, you know, we, we funded CEPI. It wasn't, you know, uh, even a 20th of what should have been done. I do think people won't forget this. Um, I do think there's, it's clear, it's possible to ramp up testing for a new pathogen very, very fast. Uh, in fact, you know, a number of countries uh, did that extremely well in this case, and the, the technology just keeps getting better there. So I'm not fatalistic about future pandemics, even though I'm, I'm disappointed we didn't get ready for this one. And even during the pandemic, the U.S. in particular uh, hasn't had the leadership messages or the coordination that you would have expected. But basically, we're still not doing enough now on this pandemic. No, not even close. I mean, just, you know, people died today. Bill Gates, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Just ahead, new guidance from the CDC on who's more at risk for complications from the virus. And it's something any expecting parent will want to know about. Also, your questions, including on what's the safest way to travel this vacation season. That and more as our global town hall continues. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. We're back. And before we get to your questions, we just want to repeat our breaking news. As of tonight, nearly 126,000 Americans have now lost their lives to COVID-19. One other late item at the top of the program, we noted the White House task force absence from the public stage. Well, we've just gotten word from the White House. Tomorrow, they'll be holding their first public briefing in almost two months, but not at the White House itself. It'll take place at the Department of Health and Human Services, led by Vice President Pence. 
and now you can uh, ask your questions. You can tweet them with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Let's bring in Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency room physician, and also visiting professor at George Washington University, as well as Baltimore's former health commissioner. Welcome, Dr. Wen. Um, before we get to, to audience questions, I, I just want to quickly ask you about some updated CDC guidance that came out about the, those that are most at risk of severe complications from coronavirus. And you may have seen it now includes pregnant women amongst others. Uh, I, I, get, I think it gives some indication of just how dangerous this virus really is. But I want to get your take on that, what the CDC just released today. Sure, and Sanjay, you and I have been talking since the beginning that we knew the risk factors that make you more likely to have severe illness from COVID-19 are increasing age and chronic medical conditions. Mm. But what exactly are these medical conditions? And so that's what the CDC attempted to summarize today. And so those conditions that, in, that have the highest likelihood for severe illness would include things that we know, uh, severe, um, ki uh, severe kidney disease, lung disease, heart disease. Also, they've included type 2 diabetes, sickle cell disease, and also importantly, obesity, which is important because 40% of Americans are obese. So that increases mm. that risk um, mm. for a lot of people. And then there are the conditions that might lead to increased risk, and that's asthma, um, it's high blood pressure, and also pregnancy, as you mentioned. And so I think pregnant people should consider themselves to be medically vulnerable, and everyone should evaluate their risks, knowing that all of these risk factors are additive. Hmm. I want to get to viewer questions. Sanjay, Susan in Illinois sent in this video. Let's take a look. Is there any type of mask you can buy to wear that prevents you from getting COVID-19? I wear my mask to protect others, but what's going to protect me? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, so there's different types of masks, right? There's the sort of surgical type mask. You've seen something like that. There are the cloth masks as well. And as, as she pointed out, uh, Linda, that you're wearing those really to decrease the transmission of the virus. What you're looking at there on the screen, though, is more uh, of the N95 mask. And these are types of masks that have been in short supply in hospitals. Healthcare workers use them. They have to be fitted uh, to your face for it to work properly. But if an N95 is fitted properly, uh, that's the type of mask that typically uh, will also protect the wearer significantly from, from getting the virus. The other ones may provide some protection as well, but it's that fitted N95. Best thing is, is for everyone to be wearing masks out in public because as you said, the, you know, the, you're wearing it to protect others, so if everyone around you is doing it, that's how you get the best protection. Yeah, Dr. Wen, this next question come, came in uh, via Twitter with our hashtag CNN Town Hall. It's there at the bottom of your screen. It reads, seems like the danger of infection via touching things infected folks have touched has declined. Is that true? Well, the CDC says that the most likely way you're going to get COVID-19 is through that person-to-person -person contact. If you're around somebody who is coughing, sneezing, talking, may not even realize that they have coronavirus, but there is still a risk of getting COVID from surfaces, from these high touch surfaces. And so there really are not that many tools for us to be using to prevent from getting COVID. And those are wearing a mask, as Sanjay was just saying, keeping the physical distance and washing our hands very well. Sanjay Patty in California sent us this video. If you must travel across the country, is it safer to take a four hour plane flight heeding all necessary precautions, or is it safer to get a sleeping car on a train? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And it depends a little bit on, on the circumstances. If, if the airport, the airplane is gonna be very crowded, the terminal's crowded, that's gonna be you know a, a, a higher risk situation. Uh, on the train car, if you are going to be in an area where you can actually be isolated, be away from people, it's all about really that contact and, and the best way that you can reduce it. You should also think about you know where are you going? Is the place that you're going potentially gonna be a, a, a place where the virus is circulating? So it's, it's, a, it's a tough call in these situations, but think about the environment overall. Um, Sanjay, I know we're getting close to 4th of July. A lot of people would like to be traveling or maybe are going to be traveling somehow. Um, I, I don't know how you found the time to do this, but I know you shot a video showing us how to take a, a road trip in the era of COVID. So let's take, a, let's take a look. So you want to take a road trip. Well, you're going to plan more this year than in years past, that's for sure. Uh, first decision point, drive versus fly. According to my friend, Dr. Preeti Milani, if you need to stay in a hotel more than a night, you're probably going to want to fly instead of drive. And keep in mind, driving does offer you a lot of flexibility and a lot of control. 
You got control over your own bags. Other people don't have to touch that stuff. You got control over the people you're coming in contact with. You can take your own food and water as well. That'll cut down on the number of stops. One thing you also want to look at is where are you going? There are some states like Maine and New Mexico, for example, that had these quarantine orders in place. So when you arrive there, you got to be in quarantine for 14 days. So you got to take that into account. Also, you know, I think most people now, when they travel, they travel with some sort of go bag. This is ours. You got hand wipes in here. You got masks. You got gloves. You got some hand sanitizer. That's for the stops that you'll inevitably have to make. Keep in mind that it's people more than porcelain that's going to transmit this virus. But there's still no reason not to take certain precautions. As far as uh, who you're traveling with, if you're traveling with family members uh, pr predominantly, you probably don't need to wear masks. If there are other people in the car, you may need to wear masks. Also, as much as possible, even though it's hot outside, try and keep the windows open about three inches. If the windows are closed, you accumulate about 10 times as much virus inside the cabin of the car. Now, finally, what about pets? It's okay to bring uh, pets along. Come here, doggies. Come here. Come here, doggies. Actually, uh, having pet sitters or house sitters in the car. Hey, come here, doggies. Come here. Come here. I could actually introduce you. Nuck and cute. That could introduce another variable into the whole mix, and you want to try and reduce your risk as much as possible. Good luck. Stay safe. Have a great summer. Thanks, girl dad. I like the t-shirt. I'm going to get you one that says boy dad. It's great. <laughs> yeah, no, and you know, I think it's got to be a case-by-case -case basis here a little bit, but I do think that idea that if you're going to have to spend more than one night on the road if you're driving, it may be better in that case to fly. You're just trying to cut down on your exposures. Hmm. Uh, Sanjay, thank you so much. Dr. Lena Wan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. also want to thank Bill Gates for sharing his time with us again. It's always great to have him. Uh, so rational and just so knowledgeable. Mm. Um, also, thanks to those of you who wrote in with your questions. To everyone who joins us tonight, if you didn't get your question answered tonight, the, the conversation continues at CNN.com slash coronavirus answers. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.